My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm joined today by my colleague, John Lederbach. Both of us are on the faculty of the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. Several months ago, we recorded a podcast reporting our findings on police sexual misconduct arrests, and I asked John to join me today to, again, address this issue in terms of the policy implications related to police officers being arrested for sex-related crimes. I think the the policy implications necessarily flow from what we believe are the major findings of the study uh, related to sex-related misconduct. I think there's a couple things to mention about our work. First of all, the sheer number of cases that were identified, 548, and that's over only a three-year period. And for anybody who's familiar with this literature, the previous literature, you would know that uh, many of the studies are case studies or based on samples derived from a single agency um, or limited news searches. And what our methodology allowed for was an identification of an unprecedented number of these cases over uh, what I believe is a comparatively short time period. I think that our methodology went into identifying more cases, and so there's some methodological reasons for a high number of cases. But nonetheless, this high number of cases should be of concern to police executives and scholars. And to give it some context, in addition to it being 548 cases over three years, that's 548 arrest cases where sworn law enforcement officers were arrested for sex-related crimes. These cases involve the arrests of 398 sworn law enforcement officers, almost 400 officers, who were employed by 328 state, local, and special law enforcement agencies. That's non-federal law enforcement agencies across the United States, located in 265 counties and independent cities in 43 states and the District of Columbia. So literally all across the country, we're not talking about one or two agencies. It's it's really large and small agencies, metropolitan areas, and very rural areas as well. I think there's a tendency uh, among some scholars, but, but more commonly probably police executives, to isolate these cases as, you know, isolated events or singular incidents or a bad apple. And I think what the sheer number of cases identified in this study really demonstrates is that these are really not isolated cases, that these kinds of cases um, occur within police agencies across the country with, with some degree of regularity. We're not saying that, you know, thousands of these cases happen every day, but the, but the number 548 is difficult to ignore. I think it's a mischaracterization to say that these are isolated incidents based on the sheer number of cases that we know about. Absolutely. Not only that, 66 of the arrested officers had more than one arrest case, either because they had more than one victim of their sex crimes and or they were arrested on more than one occasion during the three-year period while they were still a sworn law enforcement officer. So that's it's really a startling number. So the end is, you know, an obvious finding, but I think it's one that shouldn't be passed over as unimportant. I think it's probably one of the most important findings of our study. Stemming from that, I think, is the serious nature of these events. Uh, prior literature, especially the literature that goes back a couple decades, really emphasized consensual, nonviolent types of misconduct, less serious types of stuff. Um, there have been some studies that identified more serious forms of sexual violence, like rapes, uh, sexual assaults, but the number of those cases identified has been limited up to this point. 
And what we found in our data was an inordinate number of serious sexual violence cases, rapes, sexual assaults. The numbers were pretty startling. Not only are the numbers startling, but I think one of the things that really stands out for me is when we look at some of the information regarding the victims. And in our research, the victims are very young. Over half the victims of the sex-related arrest cases are under the age of 18. I think that many people, when the term police sexual misconduct is bandied about, I think they think of police officers who show some tendency toward violence towards spouses or girlfriends or other adults. And in our study, we found that the victims are commonly children. Um, and minors. And so I think this is something that um, reflects back on the literature that um, when we talk about police sexual violence, um, we are really talking about police sexual violence against children in many cases. And so that brings up a lot of different um, implications for policy and study. There's been virtually no studies that try to isolate the relationship between the victim of sex-related misconduct and the perpetrator. And the fact that we found so many victims that were that were young or even children suggests the need for more literature on the topic. We need to, to tease out these relationships and see why the victims in these types of cases are inordinately young. One of the things we found in our research when we looked at the relationship of the victim to the arrested officer, over 40% of the victims were a child unrelated to the arrested officer. It kind of brings up to light the, the likely scenarios that could have played into those. We, it goes beyond the scope of this particular study, but it seems that adult caregivers of children may be more inclined to allow access or opportunities to police officers, maybe because of their occupational identity, maybe because they trust officers, to in effect let their guard down, which usually wouldn't result in victimization, but for some cops... This is an opportunity to really victimize children in a sex-related way. We saw two different scenarios. In terms of the officers who were arrested for sex crimes committed while they were on duty, those involving children often were youth who were 13, 14, even 15 years old, many of whom were involved in the law enforcement exploring program. And it's interesting because in the explorers, it's the only part of scouting that allows for youth leaders to be one-on-one -on -one with a teen or a preteen without another adult being present is in the context of ride-alongs with police officers in the Explorers program. People trust police officers more than they do an average citizen. And so in cases like this, it really opens up victimization opportunities. I don't know how far we want to take the analogy, but Phil and I had discussed the, some, some similarities between these cases or the scenarios we're discussing now and, you know, the scandals involving the Catholic Church and priests who are also uh, afforded uh, trust by caregivers. And in some cases, that trust was violated. It may be that we're seeing similar scenarios, although, again, you know, conclusions like that probably go beyond the scope of this paper. But it does suggest um, the need for additional study on the victims of these cases and their unique situation. And in the instance of the off-duty sex crimes where officers were arrested, a lot of times what we saw there was situations where an officer's girlfriend uh, would allow access, uh, maybe leaving a 13-year-old 
with the boyfriend, where maybe in other situations, as you point out, they wouldn't be quite so trusting of a new boyfriend, but in the situation here where they're employed as a police officer, they let their guard down a little bit quicker. Right. I think the last discussion point on the findings relates to um, the trees on job loss and conviction. In terms of the statistical analyses that we conducted to predict whether or not an officer would be convicted uh, when arrested for a sex-related crime, we used a statistical analytic procedure called CART, Classification and Regression Tree Analysis. And one of our colleagues, Steve Brewer at Penn State, conducts this research along with us, and that's really his area of expertise and what he brings to our research. So in the model where we're predicting conviction in police sexual misconduct arrest cases, the CART results selected the variable years of service as the splitting criterion, meaning that's the variable that we have in our data that this statistical analysis found was the most influential in predicting conviction in these cases. And more specifically, officers who had more than 11 years of service at their time of arrest have a 93% likelihood of being convicted of a crime. In comparison, officers who had 11 years of service or less have a 77% likelihood of being convicted of a crime. The additional statistically significant variables for that model included type of agency employing the arrested officer and the age of the officer at the time of their arrest. We also had another model where we're predicting job loss, whether an officer would either be fired or resign their job after being arrested for a sex-related crime. And here, the CART analysis resulted in a model where the variable officer suspension was selected as the splitting criterion. In other words, whether the officer was suspended following their arrest was the most influential variable in the model to predict whether they'd lose their job ultimately or not. Officers who were suspended following their arrest for a sex-related crime have a 71% likelihood of ultimately losing their job. And in this model, the additional statistically significant variables for the model include whether the officer at some point during their career had been named as a party defendant in a federal civil rights civil action pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1983. That's a civil rights cause of action. And whether the agency that they work for is in an urban or rural area, uh, where in the country the agency is located, the state where the officer is employed in a law enforcement agency, and also, finally, the most serious offense charged uh, in their arrest case. So job loss, I think the, the predictors of job loss are pretty commonsensical. If it's in conjunction with a criminal conviction, then the demonstration of guilt is pretty clear, and so it gets more difficult to ignore for the organization. In cases where there's a history of misconduct um, involving civil rights violations and civil judgments, police departments are going to be reluctant to look the other way in, in an additional case of sex-related misconduct. And then finally, um, we did also find that if there was accompanying reports of a scandal or a cover-up, then job loss became more likely. And so those cases obviously become not easy to ignore. Not only are they not uh, as easy to ignore, but there's a realization at some point that an officer is a liability to the agency and they simply can't afford the exposure by retaining that person as an employee. I think that the finding, another finding related to job loss, which kind of leads into the policy implications, is we did find that if an officer was suspended, that job loss became less likely. And so in those kind of cases, it may signal that agencies feel like a suspension is punishment enough. 
And in those cases, uh, I think that brings into light some of the previous literature on officer shuffle, in which some, at least some police organizations have a tendency to let this kind of behavior go with just a suspension. And in those cases, these officers retain their job and also will produce further opportunities for victimization going forward. And so in terms of policy, I think at least some police organizations need to take um, these types of cases more seriously. So what about the policy implications? So I think that our findings lead into some probably rather obvious policy implications, ones that are easy to discuss but maybe more difficult to implement. But I think they revolve around a couple of things. The first is in terms of policy. Most police departments do not have specific policies that relate to sexual misconduct. Most police agencies have more general policies in regards to ethics and proper conduct, but nothing in specific or that specifically relates to sex-related police misconduct. I think the nature of these cases and the vulnerability of victims, the children, speak to the need for maybe some specific policies related to or against sexual misconduct by police officers. I think one other policy implication relates to training. There's no research really on the degree to which you know, basic police training or even in-service training addresses the problem of sex-related misconduct. I think some of these cases demonstrate, though, that mid-level managers and supervisors sometimes ignore these cases. So there's a need for some type of training in the way of identifying problem-prone officers, and or correlating those problems with the possibility of sex-related misconduct. You know, John, I think back over the years, and, and I'm not so sure that in some agencies that there isn't a culture, a practice that really overlooks, if not encourages, certain types of sexual banter with some of the females that officers can come into contact with during their jobs. And it just, historically, I just don't think that it's something that police departments have really taken seriously over the years. So it's it seems odd that we'd have to say, well, we got to have training for law enforcement officers, you know, not to engage in sexual crimes or sexual misconduct while you're on duty, and you better behave yourself off duty. Why would we even have to tell people that? I think it speaks to the maybe the traditional boys will be boys subculture, and the emphasis also on consensual forms of sex misconduct, which are more easily ignored. But the line between consensual misconduct and, you know, some of the cases that we saw is blurred. And so police agencies that ignore the less serious, more noxious behavior run the risk that they're actually harboring sexual predators within the ranks. Yeah, there's two scenarios that come to mind. The one is the police groupie type situation where an officer engages in consensual sexual activities while they're on duty. I think the first point to make about that is I don't see why it's ever appropriate while you're at work to engage in sexual relations with somebody, consensual or otherwise. And then the other scenario that we've seen coming up in our research recently, in too many cases, frankly, is the scenario where an officer goes on a call for service for a uh, domestic violence-related call and somehow decides that they're going to go back 
and comfort the victim when their shift is over. And we've seen this more and more often recently where ultimately crimes are committed. You know, there was a very unfortunate case recently where a woman who had been the victim of a domestic violence situation, the officer goes back after his shift. Somehow she gets hold of his firearm and commits suicide while he's there. And it just is totally inappropriate. It's a conflict of interest for officers to use the vulnerability of a victim of domestic violence as a opportunity to come back for a social visit. That really speaks to the unique nature of these crimes. It's really, those are the actions of a sexual predator that uses the power of the badge, the authority of the position to victimize, in most cases, women or children in a sexual manner. And I think it's incumbent upon police organizations to do what they can in terms of training and policy to identify and get rid of those cases. And I think the last policy implication that we had discussed is in relation to how to identify these officers uh, before the damage is done or before multiple cases have occurred. And I think that um, the role of EIS systems is probably um, an appropriate topic of discussion. And what's that acronym mean? Early intervention systems for officers to identify problem-prone officers. Okay. And these systems have been used uh, in the last couple of decades increasingly to identify officers um, from things like citizen complaints. And most often it's used in terms of, or has been used in terms of um, racial profiling claims and also excessive force claims. And there's really no reason that these types of systems can't incorporate data that can be used to possibly identify sexual predators in the ranks. But here's the problem that I see. You know, Susan Estridge years ago wrote a book called Real Rape, and she talks about in the book the situations where the criminal justice system does not do a good job of investigating and prosecuting uh, sex crime cases where it's anything other than a stranger jumping out of the bushes and violently attacking and raping a woman. When a woman comes forward to law enforcement authorities, a woman or a girl comes forward and uh, makes a claim, reports a sex-related crime that they've been a victim of, I just don't know that the law enforcement authorities really have a good grasp of how to deal with these situations, how to investigate these situations, how to really determine the veracity of a victim. And, you know, in a lot of our cases that we've looked at over the years, we see that once one victim of a violent police uh, predator comes forward and is believed and the arrest is reported in the news media, it's not uncommon that for every initial victim you have five more come forward that were also the victims of police sexual violence. In some sense, these cases are like any other uh, sex crime. And, and things that you have identified as roadblocks to identifying the perpetrators and punishing them and also helping victims. So I think it's incumbent upon law enforcement agencies to really develop policies and really rethink the way that they treat the victims of sex crimes, people who come and report things to the police to try to really determine the veracity of the victim. But, you know, so often with these early intervention systems, data have existed that would indicate a problem, but it's just been ignored. And my worry here is because of the difficulties in really grasping how to deal with these types of situations when victims come forward, that it's even more likely that the information will get lost in the shuffle or will be ignored until you've got many more victims. Perhaps one implication is the need to develop new systems 
in which these complaints are received and dealt with, um, given their unique nature. I'm not sure, but you bring up a valid point about whether these cases would get lost in existing EIS systems, or if it makes more sense to pull them out and create whole new ways in which we deal with these types of complaints. I think that's a good idea, and it's, it's certainly an area that would be appropriate for future research. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. It was recorded at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. This project is supported by award number 2011-IJ-CX-0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast recording are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. For more information on our research, please go to www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost.